This is a Romy cast. Welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode, a returning guest, is musician, singer, and songwriter Jane Gowan. It is so Terrific to be back for a third series of The Walrus Was Paul. I know that Series 2 kind of wrapped things up in the spring of 2022. And as I record this, we are in the early stages of 2023. Took me a while to get back on track. Had some other projects, things I was working on, uh, but got back onto the, uh, the Walrus Was Paul track. And we've got a bunch of great episodes to come your way over the coming months. If you are a returning listener, great to have you back. Thank you very much for subscribing to the podcast or being a loyal listener. And if you're a first-time listener, welcome. I hope you can sit back, enjoy it, and have some fun. If you like the Beatles and you like music, you're going to have a good time. I'll confidently say that. The website for the podcast is romicast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T, romicast.com. And if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is the first episode of Series 3. And you can find all of the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2 with some great guests at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Well, Jane Gowan is uh, such a talented lady. She's sitting across from me now. She's a, a songwriter and a singer and also a graphic designer. She's kicked around the indie music scene in both Vancouver and, more recently, Toronto for a number of years. Most recently, she uh, works under the guise of The Real Shade, and that has involved collaborating with Tim Vesley of The Real Statics. Their latest work is an EP called String of Lights, which you can stream wherever it is that you stream music. Jane has also entered the world of podcasting, stepping on my toes a little bit. She hosts the successful podcast Music Buddy, where she explores life through the lens of music with some of her many friends who are singers and songwriters. You can visit Jane's website, janegowan.com 
For info on Jane, that is uh, just how it sounds, J-A-N-E-G-O-W-A-N, janegowan.com. Info on Jane, her work, and what it is that she is up to. Jane, it is so great to see you again, and thanks again for coming back to talk to me about the Beatles. Honor to be here, Paul. Always a pleasure. Great to see you. And congratulations on your award, your Canadian Podcast Award for The Walrus Was Paul, this podcast. Amazing. Well, folks, you are listening to two award winners right here. It's, it's uh, yes, uh, the, uh, as I mentioned uh, before, the, uh, the Walrus Was Paul was named the uh, Music Series of the Year in the 2022 Canadian Podcast Awards. Yay. I was really happy about that. But uh, Jane would be very happy happy because uh, it w- the podcast was also uh, given an award for the best podcast artwork huh. designed by... How about that? Designed by one Jane Gowan. So artist, musician... And and podcaster as well, but we'll uh, we'll 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 dig into that uh, in a little bit. But first of all, uh, you, know, you talked about Abbey Road in your first visit, uh, the White Album in visit number two. But you go the solo route this time with John Lennon's 1971 number one album, Imagine. Why this record? Well, I've always loved the sound of John Lennon's voice. I mean, it's not that I don't love Paul McCartney. We don't have to pit them against each other. But I feel that John's voice has so much amazing texture. And I feel that his songwriting can sometimes be, you know, exploratory and dabble a little bit into the avant-garde. But he also has those songs which are just so sweet and beautiful and accessible. So he's not afraid of those two worlds or blending those two worlds. And also, I just wanted to delve deeper into this album because I... To be honest, I don't didn't know it that well, you know. Um, so I just have such great respect for him, and I always think about him at this time of year because this is December. He was assassinated on December eighth, nineteen eighty. So it's kind of a John Lennon time of year for me. We will talk about all of that stuff, loads to unpack. And I love your point. It's interesting how we love to put people into boxes and the box that uh, that people put the Beatles into as well. Paul McCartney, soppy balladeer, mm-hmm. uh, John Lennon, uh, edgy, cynical, harder edge to, uh, to his songwriting. But you go down the list and there are a couple on this record and then uh, other records, uh, Woman uh, being one that jumps out from his last record. He could write a soppy ballad up there with anybody 100 percent. you know so yeah yeah but for sure now, now what is your first memory if you have one of this record oh good question well one thing that i remember distinctly about the song imagine is being in just out of high school so 1984 the movie the killing fields came out about the uh, brutal um, rule of the Khmer Rouge uh, regime in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And um, in the final scene, the song Imagine plays in the background while you see the reunification of the two main characters, which was the journalist Sidney Shanberg, true light, a true story. It was based on a true story, obviously. So Sidney Shanberg, played by Sam Waterston, is reunited with his friend Dith Pran, um, who was also played by a Cam- Cambodian actor and doctor, Dr. Hang S. Nagore. May he rest in peace. And that song plays in the background. And I remember, I mean, you know, I'm in my late teens, early 
probably late teens, yeah, and just approaching those idealistic times of my life and realizing, under, starting to understand about um, society and the wrongs people do to each other and um, social justice and just feeling really, you know, a lot of those things. I was entering university as a political science student and that song playing was just such an emotional scene. If you go back and look, you can just Google the, you know, look, find that scene on YouTube and the, you know, they play the pretty much the whole track while these two gentlemen are reuniting. And it was so emotional. And even thinking about it now, you know, just sort of the, the hairs stand up on my arms. Um, but the other thing that I noticed about that, I think it was the first time I ever noticed anything about music placement in a film and thought, that's amazing. That's an amazing placement of that song. Well, let's put a bit of context on this before we dive in yeah. track by track. So, right. uh, and jump in at any point if you have something to add or, okay. or wondering about something. Should I raise my hand? Uh, <laughs> give me, wiggle your eyebrows. Something, like raise your eyebrows, wiggle your nose. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth Montgomery style, can you do that? <laughs> There's I an can, old guy reference for you I folks. Can, I can do my, I can wiggle my ears. <laughs> All right, so for individual members of the Beatles, 1970 comes to a very poor end. Uh, it is on... On December 31st, 1970, the Paul McCartney infamously uh, files suit against his former bandmates and Apple Corps in London's High Court to end the Beatles and company. The writ states a declaration that the partnership business carried on by the plaintiff and the defendants under the name of the Beatles and the company and constituted by a deed of partnership dated 19 April 1967 and made between the parties hereto ought to be dissolved and that accordingly the same be dissolved. So that was the wording. <laughs> Away from the courts, George Harrison is on top of the pop world with the number one album, The Brilliant All Things Must Pass. It was released in November of 1970, hit number one in the U.S. charts the first week of January 1971. In 1971, Harrison also organizes and performs at the concert for Bangladesh, which was uh, the forefather, uh, kids, uh, kids, it's the forefather <laughs> of the rock superstar charity concert. That mm. was the first one. Uh, it was held on August the 1st, 1970 at Madison Square Garden. The resulting album comes out in December of 1971. To start 1971, Paul McCartney is traveling back and forth between New York City and London recording the Ram album. That comes out in May of 1971. He then puts together the first incarnation of Wings and records Wildlife in July and releases that in December of 1971. What's Ringo up to, you're asking? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, Ringo Starr released his first hit single, It Don't Come Easy. Although it was started in 1970, it comes out in April of 1971, and it becomes a hit on both sides of the Atlantic. He then spent much of his time in 1971 pursuing an acting career, and he appears in the surrealist Frank Zappa film 200 Motels, uh, a spaghetti western called Blind Man, and he also plays in the concert for Bangladesh. Which brings us to John Lennon. So his John Lennon Plastic Ono Band album was doing okay in the charts. It was at number six on the U.S. Billboard album chart and number eight on the U.K. album chart. He was apparently a little miffed that his proper solo debut was being overshadowed in the charts by George Harrison's All Things Must Pass and by McCartney's self-titled debut the previous year. 
So Lennon's first venture into the studio in 1971 came in January in the wake of an interview with political activists Tariq Ali and Robin Blackburn. Lennon was inspired to write and record the track Power to the People. And it was released as a standalone single in March of that year. And it hit number seven in the UK, number 11 in the US, number four in Canada. During those sessions, he also did some work on a couple of other tracks that he would later revisit. John records another single, Do the Oz, which was a charity effort in aid of the legal fund for the editors of a magazine called Oz Magazine, who were facing charges in the UK for contributing to the delinquency of minors. Uh, that single never charted. It was, uh, it was a, some kind of a satirical thing on school kids mm-hmm. that, that got the authorities all wound up at the time. <laughs> what Lennon wants is a more commercially successful record than John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. So after the soul-bearing John Lennon Plastic Ono Band and the political power to the people and God Save Oz, which was the charity track, Lennon steps into his home studio, the one that he'd had constructed on the grounds of Tittenhurst Park, uh, a home he and Yoko had purchased in May of 1969 and spent a massive amount of money to completely renovate. Uh, as an aside, the Beatles' last ever photo session oh, uh, yeah, took, yeah, right. took place in the grounds of Tittenhurst Park. So anyway, uh, dubbed Ascot Sound Studios, Lennon built the studio, which featured eight recording tracks on one-inch open-reel tape and a 16-channel mixing console. So very state-of-the-art. I doubt many... Even big rock stars at that time would have had that kind of mm-hmm. setup at home. So it was, it was a pretty big deal at the time. And he did it so that he and Ono could record without the inconvenience of having to book studio time at Abbey Road or another location and travel into London. The first proper sessions for the album start on May the 24th, 1971. And they record for about a week at Ascot Sound Studios, during which they get basic tracks and vocals down for most of the album. Then the work shifts to New York City at the record plant East, and they do overdubs uh, over a two-day period, mostly strings, uh, done by an outfit called the Flux Fiddlers, who were hired from the New York Philharmonic, uh, and also some saxophone parts by a guy named King Curtis. Mm. Huge number of musicians took part in the sessions at Ascot, including former bandmate George Harrison, bass player Klaus Vorman, his old pal, uh, pianist uh, Nicky Hopkins, drummers Alan White, Jim Keltner and Jim Gordon, Joey Mullen and Tom Evans from Badfinger, and many more. Uh, it was produced by John and Yoko and Phil Specter. So did Lennon get what he wanted? Hmm. Well, the album Imagine was after Plastic Ono Band. As he, he says, here's his quote, I call it Plastic Ono with chocolate coating, is what John Lennon said. So it was, he felt it still had an edge, but it was softened a little bit, softer and more approachable than John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. His second solo album was his greatest commercial success while he was alive. Uh, On it, he tempered some of the more abrasive and confrontational elements of its predecessor, but offered instead a more conventional pop collection that contains some of his best love songs, for sure, that we'll talk about. It came out on September the 9th, 1971 in the U.S. and Canada, and October the 8th in the United Kingdom. The album hit number one in the U.K., and in the U.S. and around the world. Although, curiously, in my research, it never hit number one in Canada. Oh, that's strange. Isn't that strange? What do you think kept it 
out of the number one spot. And I'll give you a hint. The guy is the guy is still crooning. He's still out there. Gordon Lightfoot? Not Gordon Lightfoot. Good guess. Uh Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great album, too. Great album. Great album. And But it, it, <laughs> it shut Lennon's Imagine out of number one in Canada. As per chartmasters.org, which is the source I use, uh, Imagine has global physical sales of $8.2 million, second only to Double Fantasy, which sold about $9.9 million. Many of those sold after Lennon was murdered. Uh, the album has been streamed about 400 million times, and the most streamed track on Imagine is what would you say the most streamed track jealous guy imagine oh imagine well yeah of course okay just just (laughs) edit that out what am i uh, i've only had half a cup of tea and and your dog is distracting me okay so about 319 million streams if you're keeping track at home i'm Uh, gonna write that down when you throw in compilations, box sets, and so on, you're looking at more like 25 million in physical sales of the album. So it was big. big. It was big. So we're going to uh, put it on the uh, the virtual turntable here, and it is side one, cut one, the title track, Imagine. This track, I mean, you could do a whole episode just on this song, I think, because the this out the outward spiraling ripples from this song are just so extraordinary. So if you do research and you get, you go down your imagined rabbit hole, it's just it's a wonderful uh, journey. Um, I mean. It's a plea for world peace. It's as uh, as the journal journalist um, Tarek Ali was that his name or is his name? He calls it a, you know a utopian manifesto. Um, and to someone who was, as I was saying earlier, who was you know just starting to learn about the world, late teens, early twenties. I mean, it was it was almost a perfect song. His message is just it's just such a beautiful, plain spoken accessible message one country one world one people um no you know no religion no nations no capitalism let's just all be peaceful and you know some people think it's too pastel but i don't blame him for wanting to sugarcoat or chocolate coat his message i think he i think why not because he wanted to get the message out there and uh and I think he did a great job. And it's a beautiful, beautiful song. The chord structure is simple as well. So, you know, it, it really anybody can who knows a little bit of piano or guitar can follow along and play. And can, doesn't, do, you, do you play this one? I don't play it. It's not in my, it's not in my you know, normal uh, set list, but I, I can play it and I have played it and I love playing it. Is it minor chords, major chords? It's major, major okay. yeah. And it's, it's a beautiful chord progression. Just, just so simple, like C to F and... Very democratic, you know, and then it's got an E in there, uh, and it goes. Uh, it has one minor chord. I think it's either A minor or D minor. I can't remember, but it's just a simple song to play. You could play it on the guitar if you were just learning, you know. Um, so, 
it's a winner. Jane, where do you come down on the, and it's, it's, it's oft criticized for, oh, yeah, must be nice, the millionaire talking about no possessions. And mm-hmm. now, I think it's bullshit myself, but I mean, so my cards are on the table. Where do you come down on that? Well, I, I can see the point of, you know, perhaps he was sometimes, you know, and Paul McCartney did say this further on, he's, you know, when there was that uh, little uh, back and forth song war that they had later. Um called him a little bit hypocritical and I can understand that but I mean as many people that can get the message out there the better and he had a platform so although he probably wasn't following every single piece of advice that he might have been given um, and yeah he did have a lot of money and he did have a 99 acre property for goodness sakes Uh, but I just think If you're given a platform like that, I think he used it for good. It would seem the lyrics were worked on for quite some time. Uh, Lyric ideas were jotted down on a number of scraps of paper, including the stationery from the New York Hilton and the the back of a bill from a hotel (laughs) Lennon and Ono had stayed at in Mallorca. Um, Probably the song, safe to say most people, well, most people probably associate Lennon with this song, but... uh, I think a, a strong contender would also be Happy Christmas, War is Over. Yes. Um, which, you know, is will be played for long after we're gone. Definitely. Uh, as, a, as a seasonal piece. Yeah. Uh, the concept of the song was inspired by a 1963 poem by Yoko Ono yes. called Cloud Peace. Uh-huh. And that's reproduced on the back cover of the original album. I can read it to you right now if you want. It's, yeah, sure. Uh, imagine the clouds are dripping. Dig a hole in yeah. your garden to put them in. It's fantastic. I just think that's just, I just think it's kind of brilliant. And also the, the front cover, which I wanted to talk about, was our two, it's a double exposure of two photos taken by Yoko Ono. And originally they wanted clouds to kind of be in his eyes. And then they did a mock up and it looked a bit creepy. So then these two photos that Yoko took just happened upon, happened to work perfectly. I think it's a great cover too. And it just says a lot about yeah, it. It is a beauty. It's a Polaroid camera. Yeah, that's Take right. Those. Yep, yeah, and you know, and he didn't originally want to give. He didn't originally give Yoko credit for you know being one of the songwriters, but he later came to realize that maybe he should, you know, be a man and give her some credit. A couple of quotes from John: uh, Imagine is anti-religious, anti-nationalistic, mm-hmm. anti-conventional, anti-capitalistic, but because it's sugar-coated, it is accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes on to say in an interview he did with David Sheff. Uh, the song was originally inspired by Yoko's book, Grapefruit. In it are a lot of pieces saying, imagine this, imagine that. Yoko actually helped a lot with the lyrics, to your point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wasn't man enough to let her have credit for it. I was still <laughs> selfish enough and unaware enough to sort of take her contribution without acknowledging it. I was still full of wanting my own space after being in a room with the guys all the time, having to share everything. Yeah, yeah, I can, you know, that makes sense, I guess. And, you know, but also John Lennon was that, had that dichotomy of being being liberal-minded, but also being a bit of a, he's a guy, you know, he's just kind of, he comes from that era too. It was a, it was a sexist, misogynist era. I mean, they were calling Yoko Ono Mrs. Lennon all the time and, and that wasn't her name, things of that, you know. So he was, he, I think he was battling through that with himself. Um, did you know that this song, after 9-11, this song was, uh, put on Clear Channel, now iHeartRadio's Do Not Playlist. And it was also banned 
by the BBC during the Gulf War? Uh, they did a bunch of takes. Uh, my research showed 10, uh, and you, you can pick up a lot of them on various bootlegs and also collections that have put out. The, the box set has everything on it, the, the most recent yeah. one. Uh, strings were added to a stereo submix at the record plant in New York City on, in, uh, on July 4th, 1970, when the track was mixed for stereo the next day. You have Klaus Vorman on bass. Alan White is on the drums. Uh, there were some attempted versions with Nicky Hopkins and Lennon both playing on the same piano but at different octaves mm-hmm. uh, but it was decided that it sounded better with just Lennon playing Yeah. in the video that you see and we'll talk more about how much this whole project was documented you see him sitting at a white baby grand piano uh, that was not they tried to use that piano but the sound in the room wasn't very good so they ended up using a piano that he had in the studio that's, that's the right. actual the one yeah, on the song that's interesting but yeah, in the video, he's playing it. Yeah, and it's funny because in the, I think in the Above Us Only Sky, I mean, there have been three documentaries made of this album, um, but in the Above Us Only Sky documentary, which I guess is the most recent one, you, sh- <laughs> you show him, it shows him playing it and he's got the headphones on, he's recording it. And then they say, you know, about an hour in, oh, it's not going to work, John. He goes, well, you told us that an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> All was not lost, that's for sure. Now, now to some, Jane, the song took on a different meaning nine years later when it was played after Lennon's murder on December 8th, 1980 that Mm -hmm. that you referenced earlier. He was gunned down outside of his New York City residence by Mark David Chapman. Uh, He's still in prison for his crime. Uh, And Imagine's call for peace and brotherhood became all the more poignant. Um, So it kind of took on a different meaning. Now, what I want to ask you is, for somebody in our age demographic, you're a little bit younger than I am, but but do you remember, for me, that was a, a flashbulb memory moment of, you know, 1972, Paul Henderson, where were you? You remember that if you're yeah. my age. This yeah. was a flashbulb memory for people of my vintage, a lot of them. Do you have that memory of it? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I remember exactly. I was in my normal position, I think, which was at the edge of the couch, probably with the headphones on listening to some album. I'm not sure which one, not necessarily the Beatles, but, um, and, uh, my brother called down from the top of the stairs telling me that, that John Lennon had been shot. And I, I just, it, it's a flash, but I don't remember a lot from those times because my mom had passed away the year, almost exactly to the day, the year earlier. So my memory is pretty blurred around those times, but that is a vivid one for sure. I mean, it was so significant to all of us because all of us were listening to a lot of Beatles at that time. So you were on the West Coast, yeah? I was on the West Coast. So that would have been about eight o'clock at night, something like that? I guess it was, yeah. yeah. I, my memory is I was in Toronto, so Eastern time. Yeah. And uh, there used to be this show on, I have a very detailed memory of this, on on the radio station called CFRB, which is a big heritage station in Toronto, oh, big yeah. news station at the time. Huh. Uh, and they did this big half hour newscast from 11 o'clock at night till 11.30. And I would put it on when I was getting ready to go to bed and then I'd tr- on a transistor radio and, <laughs> cool. and lie in bed and listen to the news and, and doze off to sleep. Yeah. So right near the end of the news, which is in the first segment, the announcer says, he goes, we just have this news in from New York City. Former Beatle John Lennon has been shot outside of his apartment in New York City and he's being rushed to hospital. No further details are available. Ugh. And I was like, oh my God, some loony shot John Lennon. Yeah. And you know, you didn't think the worst because it didn't sound like the worst when the bulletin, it sounded like he's been shot. They're taking him to the hospital. So, mm-hmm. And then I remember 
it came on about 11.30, 25 after 11 and around there. And it was the, the end of this. And they said, we just received news that former Beatle John Lennon has died as a result of gunshot wounds in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stay tuned for further information, whatever. And the thing I remember was... I mean, shocked, but I remember my little radio and twirling the dial. It was AM from one end. To, and Jane, within 10 minutes, when you moved it along, every time a station came on, it was playing a Beatles song mm-hmm. or a John Lennon song. Yeah. It was just amazing how quickly the world went. Oh, my God. Wow. Uh, and it was, you know, I, I'll never forget that. Yeah. Absolutely. Very, a very vivid and very tragic moment. I mean, any gun death is a tragedy. Uh, Gun violence is a tragedy and there's too much of it for sure. Uh, We know that even more now than we did in 1980, but it was one of those moments that really, you know, kind of made us all stand up and look at what was going on, you know, and why and, and question things more. And yeah, this song for sure, uh, is a good uh, portrait of that, I, I guess. Beautiful song to start the album with, uh, and, and interesting. Not a not a typical. Certainly with the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, George Martin, uh, to use his word, he said, uh, "Boys, we need a pot boiler to start the album." Yeah, and they always did. You know, yeah. uh, I saw her standing there. Uh, you know, they they, they came in uh, like it, with a, back in the USSR, like it was, and very. It, it's a weird song to start with, don't you think? Like, it's very mellow. It is. It is a weird song to start with. I guess people who had listened to the album uh, before he released it might have said, this is, I th- we think this is the one, you know, this, we think this is the hit. So maybe he'd gotten some feedback on that. I think it could have easily been the last song and, and Oh Yoko could have been the first song. It could have, yeah. you know, started with love and ended with peace, but instead it started with peace and ended with love, um, which was great as well. But yeah, I think... The whole album could have been uh, sequenced, different, you know, just upside down. Yeah. But that's, what do I know? <laughs> so let's go to uh, track number two. You start with a, an iconic song, Imagine, and the title track of the record. And we go to song number two. Uh, I like it. It's a fun song. And it's, a, it's, a real, it's really jarring coming out of Imagine, Crippled Inside. I mean, it's a kind of corny country and Western. It's one of those things almost like Paul McCartney would have done in in the Beatles days, you know. Um, But at the same time, it's sort of got, in my opinion, I don't really know what his intent for the lyrics were or how how he wanted people to interpret them. But it does seem like it could be a social commentary, uh, a little bit critical of, you know, the way things, the way of the world, you know, what's on the outside might not be what's on the inside. You might be not telling the truth, which he gets to later in the album. Um, It also reminds me of songs like Rocky Raccoon or, or even Mick Jagger singing Faraway Eyes, you know, those kinds of those kinds of songs where they were kind of putting on a style, you know, not necessarily, Mick Mick Jagger puts on an accent in Faraway Eyes, but, you know, in this one, it seems like they're almost kind of adapting a style that 
just sort of putting it on for for novelty purposes almost. Yeah, it's a, it's a pastiche of a country and western song. Yeah, you know, exactly. Which, which, uh, uh, and he does, he d- definitely takes a couple of swipes at, uh, at his old bandmate, uh, you know, uh, you can comb your hair and look quite cute. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 there's a couple of swipes of McCartney in there. Yeah. Uh, and of course the famous one we'll get to later on, How Do You Sleep? But yeah. uh, it was originally tracked in May of 1971. Lennon said in an interview, uh, a very gay country in western one when uh, gay had a different, different. meaning than, yeah. <laughs> than it does now yeah. um uh, and the middle uh section is from uh, he says from some traditional song that i mm. heard a few years ago uh, that song was in fact a uh, black dog blues uh, aka call me a dog people with a keen eye uh, would have seen it show up in the uh, the get back documentary well now they call me a dog when i'm gone now, babe, it's black dog when I'm gone. When I get home with a $20 bill, Daddy, where you been so long? similarity yeah i guess yeah i don't know um sometimes those kind of quote-unquote cousin songs i can see where it came from i can hear also effects of this song on other songs that i that i've listened to since like the effects of crippled inside oh, okay. you know uh, and other songs on this album that have influenced subsequent mm-hmm. Performers. And uh, I, I like the way it kind of bops along. Uh, working title was one thing you can't hide. Uh, they ended mm. up going with crippled inside. That's mm. George Harrison on the Dobro mm-hmm. uh, playing that, and Nicky Hopkins with just some great piano work. I'm a big fan of Nicky Hopkins. Wow, what a musician! Um, and he's playing tack piano on this, and it's just got that great. You know, he's he played. His, his style, especially on this song and a couple others on the album, is very busy in a way, but it doesn't feel busy. You know, he's playing a lot of notes. He's, he's playing, uh, you know, he's, it's complex, his part. It's not a simple, simple part, but he just got such great rhythm and, and uh, the way his hands attack the piano is just amazing. And uh, dear listener, uh, if you're a big music fan, do a, a quick Google search and read the Wikipedia entry for the late Nicky Hopkins, unfortunately, yeah. but absolutely brilliant session pianist mm-hmm. at the time and played with everybody who was anybody. He played with John Lennon. He played with the Beatles. He plays a piano on Revolution. Yeah, uh, plays the solo on there. Played with the Stones. Played with like everybody. That's right. Yeah, he's uh, on a lot of Stones stuff. Brilliant guy. And you know, you see him. You see him come into the studio in those in those in the film footage they have of the making of this album, and you can just see he's just got this big smile on his face. He's pretty. He's super laid back. His, he's listening so carefully. Yeah, he's got amazing hands. Big long fingers. Yeah, and just so focused. Um, but like so many of the musicians on this album were doing, just really paying attention to what the intent is that John was trying to get across with these songs and trying to honor the song as best po- as possible. 
Uh, Klaus Vorman plays a bass guitar, and then uh, it was further enhanced by a guy named Steve Brendel, yeah. or Brendel, who plays an upright bass. Yeah. And I will make reference here to, if, if you have an original copy of the album, which I did, um, <laughs> very technology of the time, it was very muddled to me you can't hear a lot of the individual instruments well it's kind of crushed together uh if you listen to the latest incarnation from a couple of years ago Mm. it just opens it right up and you can actually hear the bass and the upright bass you can hear the difference between the two of them, which amazing was lost on me and uh in in the the earlier mixes so yeah i think it's really worthwhile to listen to those what they're calling the ultimate mix yeah. Oh, yeah. of this yeah. album because um, it was remixed by Paul Hicks at Abbey Road Studio and with you know the direct under the direction of Yoko Ono and uh, it just has so much depth and definition and quality they really did an amazing job and um, and also I think Yoko Ono wanted the uh, remixes to you know pay tribute like highlight John properly. So highlight his voice. And a couple of times where his voice would have been maybe a little bit buried in the mix, it really comes through, not in a way that you'd notice and and find offensive and and not in a way that dishonors the original mix, but just everything, like you say, is so, you can hear it so well. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is worth a listen, whether you stream or, or want to pick up. The, like the box set is just, there's a book that goes into massive, massive detail, more detail than, yeah. than time allows me to go into. And then, then yeah, it's, it's the nice mix. Yeah. Uh, so we go to track number three on side one. And this is one that Beatles fans will sort of recognize. Uh, oh, yeah. Jealous Guy. beautiful, beautiful piece of music, as Jim Keltner called it. Um, and, you know, speaking of Jim Keltner, he played uh, drums on this and he, I guess he was called in. <laughs> he was called in because uh, John was trying to get uh, Eric Clapton and they called up Eric Clapton at home and he hadn't woken up yet. Jim Keltner was his band, uh, roommate at the time. And uh, he's like, um, no, Eric's still asleep. And the, whoever was calling said, well, can you wake up him? him up and Jim said no I can't wake him up I'm not going to go up to Eric Clapton's room and wake him up and they said well what are you doing do you want to come down and you know uh, play drums on John's album means like uh, yeah yeah I'll be right there (laughs) so uh, hello what do you think so um, oh yeah getting back to the song I just think it's a gorgeous, gorgeous song. I guess it was, you know, it had a many iterations. It, it started in 1968 when they were in Rishikesh, I suppose, and uh, listening to lectures by the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I'm just a child in nature. I don't need much to set me free. I'm just a child. Um, and then evolved from Child of Nature, um, and then uh, it's a gorgeous melody. This arrangement is ridiculous. There's harmonium, there's vibraphone, there's, uh, again, amazing piano player, uh, piano, uh, amazing piano playing from Nicky Hopkins, um, 
John does some fine whistling. <laughs> it's a, and of course, the, the flux fiddlers. Let's let's just give them credit uh, and and the arrangements of those strings. Beautiful. Yeah, it really does enhance the album. It, it, it really does. Yeah. Uh, Lennon says, uh, to your point, it was from a lecture of Maharishi where he was talking about nature. So th- that's how it started. The melody had been around for a while. It's the lyrics that changed yeah. uh, quite a few times. Uh, and he says, the lyrics explain themselves clearly. I was very jealous and a possessive guy toward everything. A very insecure male, a guy who wants to put his woman in a little box, lock her up, and just bring her out when he feels like playing with her she's not allowed to communicate with the outside world outside of me because it makes me feel insecure yeah so. i like that confessional nature oh that's abby and uh, yeah i don't know if I, the uh, the official uh, the, the walrus the, was paul uh, official mascot, official mascot. <laughs> well, wandering think, around in our studio uh, the the dog abby at our studio <laughs> otherwise known as a room in my house so <laughs> <laughs> she really likes the jealous guy song um it's you know I like the confessional nature of this. I like how John, you know, in general, John Lennon wasn't afraid of saying what his intimate feelings were about things, whether it be something political or whether it be about Yoko and his love for her or his insecurities. I just find that very um, unique for a man of of that time. You know, here's an interesting twist which I'd never thought of, and I, I read it when I was researching for this podcast. Yeah. So the lyrics and Lennon said that they're about a relationship and he talks about a man-woman relationship. But Paul McCartney always thought that it was about him. Now, if one reads them as being about McCartney, it provides a revealing insight into Lennon's viewpoint on the Beatles' breakup and a counterpoint to Imagine's How Do You Sleep, which is a a nasty song we're going to talk about, you know, vitriolic attack on, on... So doesn't that put it... If you think that it's about... Yeah. McCartney, I yeah. was feeling insecure. That's right. You know, and, the, and just going through all of that. Understandable. I didn't mean to hurt you. That's right. I never thought about it that Sorry way. Sorry that I made you cry. Yeah. But I mean, when it comes right down to it, any, uh, most songs are about more than one thing, you know, or have multiple meanings or come from one more than one source. So I guess that makes sense, you know, if it's just about relationships in general. Yeah. Uh, now that's just that's complete speculation. Sure. McCartney has said he thinks it was about him. <laughs> Lennon, you know, prior to his death in interviews, always said, "I've read you the quote. You know, it was about you know my relationship with women, me." And yeah. he didn't he didn't specifically say Yoko, but it, you know, it, it's about his relationship with women. So yeah, well, he does talk about wanting to possess Yoko one hundred percent. You know, uh, and I've I always found that a bit strange, but um, I guess he just because he had lost his mom maybe twice when he was he, he lost her he got she got taken away from him at first didn't she and then she died in a car accident yeah she couldn't raise him so he was left with his aunt yeah. to be raised and then uh she sort of showed up again and then she was you know unfortunately run over by a car yeah uh, so killed. he was always searching for the sense of sort of security and i think he he lacked that um and then when he when he hooked up with yoko i think he felt like he could maybe settle into that and finally kind of trust you know here's a good story Uh it was the last song that john lennon ever performed in public oh wow and here's how 1977 
he stays for a couple of months in the presidential suite of Tokyo's Okura Hotel while Yoko Ono was over visiting relatives, so he was over there. One day, he was playing an acoustic guitar and singing the song to himself. The door was unlocked, and a Japanese couple accidentally arrived at the suite going into the wrong, the wrong room. And the couple sat there and listened, as the story goes, as Lennon performed the song, after which they got up and walked back to the elevator. Although nobody at the time knew it, it's believed to be the last time members of the (gasps) public ever saw Lennon perform a song. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's intense. Great uh, great cover version as well by Roxy Music, which yeah. they put out as a tribute to Lennon after his death. That's right. And that, that became a single before... Uh, I mean, that became... It was really released as a single before this was this version was released as a single. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's yeah. What I'm yeah trying this to was say. never released as a single while Lennon was alive. That's it, right. It, it was afterwards. Now the last music that you put out, uh, me, yeah, oh. that you put out before we move on to the next song. The last music you put out. So that that was the last time he performed something. So that was the segue. That was the last time John Lennon performed. <laughs> so the last time you put out some music that you were performing gotcha. under your, your moniker, The Real Shade. Yeah. Uh, the Real Shade, a.k.a. Jane Gowan and mm-hmm. Friends. 2021 String of Lights. Uh, a six song, I'd call it an EP, done with... It, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah not a, it's an EP, mm-hmm. uh, done with your sometimes collaborator, Tim Vesley of The Rio Statics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there has been other music as part of your podcast project, Music Buddy. So graphic artist, musician, and now podcaster. So now, you know, crowding into my real estate. I learned from the best, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Tell people about the podcast. Oh, okay. Sure. The podcast, as Paul kindly said, is called Music Buddy. And I've had great guests, such as Paul Romanuk. Um, Season one is almost wrapped up. So I've had about 20, 20 episodes so far. And it's really just conversations about music with either musicians or with people who are just involved in music, huge music fans, have something in their life that is music-based. I mean, like you, you've got this podcast, you're also a sports guy. Um, but it's just... You know, I wanted to talk to people about music, and that's what this uh, podcast is about, and it's a lot of fun. I love yeah. it. It's a great listen. It's called uh, Music Buddy, and you can stream it wherever you like to stream your podcast. Now, yep. there's a musical element as well. That's what I was referring to with uh, what you've done since String of Lights. Oh, yeah. So, what's, how does that, and what it is, folks, is there's there's a, not on every episode, I don't think, but on some of the episodes, you play with like an ad hoc band? Yeah, well, it's really just me and Tim Vesley. So we will, if we've got a guest that's a musician and and songwriter, we'll ask them to come in and perform one of their original songs with us, with me and Tim. (laughs) We're the Music Buddy Band in the Woodshed Studio, which is here in Toronto. It's Blue Rodeo's studio. And um, so we'll play a song of theirs live off the floor, and then sometimes we add little bits and pieces to it after the fact, and Tim will mix it. Uh, he records it, and then he mixes it, and um, then we put it at the end of the podcast episode. And it, it's um, it's been turning out great so far. I'm looking so, for a Music Buddy EP. I, I, I'm, I'm going to make that happen. And, you know, we've had great artists such as Julian Taylor, Andrew Cash, Stephen Stanley, uh, Jill Deacon, um, my friend Steve Wright, my friend, my old bandmate Cora Lee. We, with her, we did it uh, remotely because she's in Vancouver. I mean, it's been a blast. All right, give it a listen, music buddy. Thanks, Paul. Uh, with uh, 
Jane Gowan, musician, and as I say, she's now crowding into. I'm going to put an album out. I'm going to put an album out. Yes, actually. Hey, but you know, look, look. You're a sports guy. I like sports. We like a little competition. It's it's healthy, that's, right? That's it true. Just, it, it it keeps each other real. That's true. I was well, you were nipping at my heels in the standings. <laughs> I was no, I saw that. Uh, let's go to the uh, the second last track on side one. It's so hard. Well, hmm. all right. Well, one thing I noticed about this song is the intro sounds like the slow uh, Revolution One from the White Album, and even there's that ding 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 guitar riff that comes in just a a little bit after Revolution One starts. But this one starts with that kind of a guitar riff. riff. Like that is that kind of bluesy kind of what do you call that? Like ding 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 six eight. I guess it's kind of it's. Uh, so that's the first thing that strikes me about this song is it's familiar, you know, that familiarity with revolution and the bluesiness of something like a song like Your Blues from also from the White Album. Um, and the other thing that I love about this song is King Curtis on tenor saxophone. Uh, there's, you know, he's just playing, John wanted him to play as dirty as possible and he did. And it, he's just a fabulous player. And it's kind of sad to know that he... Uh, he also met his demise via violent means, which was getting stabbed, um, not his own fault. So that was, and soon after the recording and the release of this album. Yeah, it was July 5th, King Curtis in New York City adds a saxophone solo. Yeah. Uh, and well, he made a contribution to I Don't Want to Be a Soldier, a song we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, and it was, might have been, if it wasn't his final performance, it was darn close because he was murdered on the 13th of August, 1971, shortly before Imagine was released. Mm-hmm. So yeah, pretty awful. Yeah. Um, they, they knew King Curtis from, John did from his days with the Beatles. Uh, during the 1965 US tour, King Curtis played on the same bill as the Beatles. Oh yeah. Uh, so Lennon was really jacked to have him involved with the Imagine session because you know, somebody who he, he knew from the old days. Um, and uh, he, he played just, yeah, some, some great solo work that he recorded. Uh, this was the first song that was recorded in Lennon's new home studio. At right. Park. This is yeah. the, the first one. So posterity there. Nice. And, and it reminds me, I don't know about you, Jane, it reminds me a little bit more of the style of John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. Uh, as right. opposed to, it was a little more gritty yeah. and John's guitar work. Yeah. Sounds to me, it could, like, sounds to me like it could have been on that album. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, makes but, sense. But was it, you got Klaus Vorman on bass, Jim Gordon on drums. Yeah. And again, they add strings. Yeah, Flex Fiddlers, yep. And King Curtis's stuff was overdubbed too, right? Like he did it at the... Uh, record Plant. The Record Plant, yep. which was at that time in New York, now yep. is in LA. Yeah. Um, so so he was overdubbing with the string parts already in place, I think. Flex Fiddlers went first. Yeah. And then he came in the following day and did his sax bit. Yeah, because on those Evolution tracks, which are on, that, are on the Ultimate Mix, which are amazing to listen to, I have to say. It's like mini audio documentaries. Um, you, you can hear him trying to work around 
the strings. Like so, he's working in between the vocals right. and also working cool. around the string parts. And you you kind of notice his mastery and his musicality really comes through because he's really he's making room for everything. You know, just putting his putting his bits in where they need to be. I mentioned Jim Gordon on drums. Did yeah. you know anything about Jim Gordon? Oh no, but please enlighten me. He plays tambourine on this too. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Jim Gordon. Fascinating character in not all the ways you'd like. Uh, he played on Gordon Lightfoot's Sundown album oh, wow. a few years later, 1974. Uh, and he was the drummer in Derek and the Dominoes oh, yeah. with Eric Clapton. And he wrote and played the piano coda for Layla. Oh, wow. And gets a co-writing credit on the song, on the, the long version of the song. Now... You mean the da na 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 Exactly, oh, okay. right. And, and now further to that, in a story that's been substantiated by other musicians, Gordon apparently ripped that piano part from a song that his then-girlfriend, Rita Coolidge, oh. was working on. Uh, oh. So, yeah. What did Rita the, have to say about that, I wonder? She, she said he ripped it off. Uh, <laughs> it was a song we were working on, and he took it and, and, uh, and worked it in. Sadly, uh, he the, the guy had undiagnosed schizophrenia, oh. and in 1983, he killed his mother. Uh, he God. remains in prison in California to this day. Oh, Paul, that's... Oof. What a life. That's gruesome. Yeah, that's crazy. That's very sad. For him to be like, he's on this album, he's Layla, the Layla guy with Gordon Lightfoot on Sundown. I don't know. How did that happen? Yeah, how did that happen? Uh, But yeah, fascinating, fascinating character. So that that last aside, but uh, we get to the last cut on side one. Yeah. uh, Oh, yeah. And uh, some more great King Curtis playing I Don't Want to Be a Soldier. Yeah, this one, I don't know. I can't say enough about this one. It's it's really one of those songs that grew on me over time. And then I just realized how uh, profound it is. I mean, again, we've got the, the, the dichotomy. Is that the right word? The dichotomy of this album, which is part um, political rant and part uh, anti-war messaging and then part peace and love, you know, and this one is definitely in the um, the anti-war category, but also a little bit more hard-hitting. It's a denser song, so because he's uh, he's rallying against societal's society's expectations, and he doesn't want to be trapped by what is expected of him, whether it's being conscripted and sent to war, or whether it's being told what to wear, or you know whatever it is, and and you really get that feeling of his feeling trapped when you're listening to this song, the way the vocal is kind of raw and there's a lot of effect on it. And you feel like, you know, you feel like you're singing, he's singing from his, the place that he's actually feel, you know, he's singing from the, what he feels. He, it, there's a lot of feeling on the vocal is what I'm trying to say. In, a, in addition to some effect. I mean, I think Phil, they gave Phil Spector maybe a little bit more, uh, 
uh, latitude on this in terms of his production. They made it, he was able to make this one a little bit more denser as was his, as he was prone to do with things. You know, his wall of sound comes through a little bit more on this. There's a lot of, a lot of playing on here. Um, in the, the rest of the album, he's a little bit more spare, but here he's given some free reign and it kind of suits the song because the song's about being conscripted, constricted. Um, I don't know, I can't say enough. I think it's a great groove. And again, as like you said, King Curtis's solos, there's, I think he does two tracks on here. You can really hear them in their panned left and right and uh, amazing playing. Remind some people, you know, same idea of I want you, she's so heavy. So it is this song with very sparse lyrics, the same lyrics, just repeated yeah. over and over again. And the, yeah. the song kind of builds. Uh, it started essentially as a studio jam based uh -huh. around the words in the title. Um, and Lennon later described it as a, quote, an amazing jam session track. And uh, the first version was recorded in February of 1971 at... Ascot Sound Studios, and it had Gordon on drums, Jim Keltner playing percussion as well, Klaus Vorman on bass, uh, Bobby Keys played the sax, and uh, the vocals and guitar ah, by Lennon, but he didn't nice. like it. Oh, interesting. Scrapped that whole version, and then they re-recorded the song during the Imagine Sessions. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's it. Uh, seven takes. Yeah. Uh, take four was the master. Yeah. And then they overdubbed some vibraphone and a tambourine. Right. And I guess that when they were really going at it, the, the studio was full. So they had Alan White uh, in the bathroom next to the studio. <laughs> that's playing right. Vibes. Yeah, playing the vibes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. And they were, t you know, they were talking about the flushing of the toilet and such. And, um, yeah, the, the interesting, I like the repetition of this. It really suits it, the repetition of those words. Uh, and the way he starts out the words really slowly, I don't want to. Um, and I think there's only 25 words in total, 25 different words on this song, right? It's just that repetition to state a point. It's, a, it's almost like a way that someone like Martin Luther King Jr. would have done his speeches, you know, saying the same words, repeating those same words over and over again to get people worked up about the message he's trying to deliver. Funny though, eh? everybody's got their own take. You mm. love the song. I like it. Uh, Chip Mundinger, mm -hmm. uh, quote, the low point of imagine. Uh, yeah. The cacophonous I Don't Want to Be a Soldier with Spectre's Wet Dream production <laughs> on the record, a six-minute, thickly textured, not altogether pleasant listening experience with lyrics simply consisting of the repetition of the line, I don't want to be a soldier, mama, I don't want to die. Yeah, well, look, look, I mean, when I first heard the song, I got to say that's a little bit more along how, that's how, a little bit more how I felt, but after repeated listening, it, it, it kind of worked its way into me, my brain, and... Um, I enjoyed it, yeah. So I think a lot of my favorite music is that way. Like it starts out like I get a bit repelled by a particular arrangement or a particular vocal delivery, and then over time, if I listen to it enough, I'll realize the you know the brilliance of it. <laughs> so we are just going to take a quick pause from the album here. So hold your thought, uh, and I'd like to ask you to please consider making a donation to support keeping the show commercial free. 
Any donation is much appreciated, and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show, web hosting, advertising, some equipment costs. Uh, This is the third series of The Walrus Was Paul, and as I've said before, it's a labor of love for me. I really enjoy doing it. I love the opportunity to sort of get out of the sports world, which was my stock and trade as a professional broadcaster for so many years, uh, and talk about music, talk about the Beatles music, and talk to some of my great guests about their music as well. Uh, If you enjoy the show, please consider a donation to support it. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode, whatever you can afford. It's not that much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you'd like to donate. If you can afford it, please do consider it. Along those lines, big shout out to Sandra Gantner for her generous donation recently. And also a shout out to Tyler Rafter, who sent a message with his donation saying, uh, in part, Hey Paul, thanks for this wonderful podcast about the world's greatest band. It's been my companion on my long walks, which I started when the pandemic started. Well, you have no idea how nice that makes me feel. Tyler, thank you very much. Uh, I'm so happy that my efforts have provided some good company on those walks. That's what it's all about. I do this because I enjoy it, but you enjoy it more when you know people are listening to it. Uh, again, if you'd like to make a donation, happy to give you a shout out as well. Just visit the website, romicast.com. And also, if you're enjoying this episode, I just want to point out that you might also enjoy one of the other episodes on which Jane Gowan appears. She's in episode four of series one, talking about Abbey Road. And she also appears on episode four of series two, talking about sides three and four of the White Album. So you can look for those. Now, Jane, let's get back to John Lennon's Imagine album. Uh, But just before we drop the needle on side two, uh, I think it's fair to say, so I'm going to say it. I think that John Lennon was a guy who was on a journey and maybe looking for answers in his life. Aren't we all, really? Uh, You did a lovely song on the String of Lights EP with Tim Vesley called Ghosts. And it sounds to me like maybe you were searching for something. Been out here for weeks Chasing the sun for um i'm looking to uh, tell you a story about a person who is um in between places in their life so they're going they're trying to figure things out and uh it's actually kind of loosely based on my dad before I knew my dad or before my dad knew me. He, it's a story he told me about a, a long car trip he took around America. Um, so I'm just trying to evoke a moment where a decision's being made about your life, a big decision. 
So that's what I was trying to get across in that song. And obviously the road, the sun, you know, the freedom, that kind of, which I like to repeat a lot of that in a lot of my songs. That's uh, one of the themes I return to over and over again is that theme of moving forward, but looking backwards. I love it. Uh, give it a listen, listeners. Uh, it's, it's called Ghosts, and it's on the EP by The Real Shade, a.k.a. Jane Gowan, called String of Lights. So we, uh, we'll put the needle down on side two, and side two, cut one, give me some truth. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth I've had enough of reading things By neurotic, psychotic, pig-headed politicians Oh yeah, John at his ranty best Um, You know, just basically railing against the forces that be And uh, probably mostly Nixon maybe at the time Because I know Nixon wanted to deport him uh, So it was... uh, heavy on his tail and he was trying to avoid that and um, actually spent a year in a town called Ojai, is it Ojai in California, avoiding the Nixon government while looking for Yoko's lost daughter. So yeah, just railing against the forces that be and there's a lot I like about this song. I love George's playing on here, his great arpeggiated motif in the background, just so distinctly George Harrison, and a great solo that he plays on, on electric and, um, and slide, too. He plays a great slide guitar. So, yeah, give me some truth. You're having this one. The, the, the neatest story uh, surrounding this, uh, the origins of the song go back to the Beatles' 1968 trip to Rishikesh. Uh, and the group first performed it during the Let It Be sessions. So if you watch the Get Back Peter Jackson documentary, here is the neat part, which, I mean, there's so many things that came out of that documentary. Uh, he kept in touch with the surviving Beatles, McCartney and Ringo, as he poured over the footage for the Beatles' Get Back. And he came to a section in which Lennon was noodling around with Gimme Some Truth, and Jackson shared it with McCartney. Uh, the song, of course, eventually turned up on this album. Here's the quote. I was meeting with Paul and I said to him, you know that John Lennon song, Give Me Some Truth, Jackson said. And McCartney says, uh, that's the one on Imagine? Yeah, I know that one. Jackson says, did you know that you actually co-wrote that with John? And he said, what are you talking about? I showed him this footage from the Get Back sessions where Paul and John are working on Give Me Some Truth. Paul's come up with that money for rope line, which John loves. And Paul looked at Peter Jackson and said, I have no memory of that. I had no idea I was involved with that song. Amazing. Yeah, that's so funny that he doesn't remember that. That's really cool. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch Get Back for the third time 
<laughs> Paul. Now, just to just to hone in on that little scene there, you do you see yeah. them working on it, and yeah. he's helping him with the words, and and just like Jackson's description, he that money for rope, you know, which is a play on the you know the money for old rope, right. uh, and and it's like you see, yeah, and he writes it down, yeah, and that so. means money that's come by too easily, right? Is that yeah. how it, it's an old English term? Yes, yeah, that line, no short-haired, yellow-bellied son of Tricky Dicky gonna mother Hubbard soft soap me for just a pocket full of hope. He just nailed that. You know, that's a lot of words and a lot of <laughs> rhyming yep. going in. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's a yeah, great, line. great, great, some great lyrics in it, and yeah. you know, classic sort of nasty vein Lennon uh, in that. You know, the the, the reference to Tricky Dicky Nixon and uh, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, it was it was one of his uh, one of his earlier protest songs, I'd say. Right. Definitely. You know, give me some truth. Yeah. Uh, he's really, yeah, it's it's one of his natural go-to places, I think, this kind of, uh, the, the rant, you know? So we go to cut number two. And uh, again, really, as on side one, you open with this beautiful imagine mm-hmm. and then go into this sort of jaunty, crippled inside. You open up with this sort of hard edge protest song and into Oh My Love. beautiful song um this song is often in my head when i wake up in the morning it just it just pops in there a lot i don't know why maybe just especially lately because i've been listening to the album more but uh yeah it's a it's a killer Controlled uh, mastery that they that George Harrison and John Lennon had in their playing in the song's introduction, and you actually see it when you're watching footage that they had to kind of do it again and again because of the timing. George has that lovely intro line that he's playing on the uh, on the guitar, and then he's joined by John Lennon's piano, and their timing is so impeccable. And then later in the song, the interplay between John's piano and the choice of adding Nicky Hopkins on keyboard on the RMI Electro piano is just such a brilliant, inspired choice. So you've got John playing piano and Nicky Hopkins playing a slightly more busy part on the keyboard. I just think it's a beautiful arrangement. Uh, it is a co-write with uh, Yoko. Yeah, she's she's credited with the co-write there. That and Imagine are the only two tracks in this album where she gets an actual co-write credit. Uh, and that lots of bootleg footage as well as the stuff in the movie where you see he and Harrison working on the song. That was a I love your your observation. That's why I love talking to musicians because that was a real musician's eye view of to pick up that the intricacy of that timing. That is something that I would have just said. Oh, it sounds really nice the way they go together. Uh, and and I love that. The, it's so understated, but the little guitar part at the beginning that Harrison plays the. It's incredible. I mean, you know, people forget how much focus is required to execute something like that on an instrument. I mean, we all listen to it and go, isn't that great? Oh, it's so pretty and blah, blah, blah. But to actually get that so that it, it has stayed with us all these years and to make it the playing so good I mean it just shows what kind of you know they were really talented musicians and they and they worked hard and they had amazing focus when you when you look at Nicky Hopkins when in between takes he doesn't even take his hands off the keys like he just sits there and waits for John's feedback and just sits with his with his eyes down poised 
ready to play, you know, again and just nailed it, you yeah. know. Great player, right? Yeah. Just such a great player. Amazing yeah, Nikki player. Hopkins. Um, so, so John Lennon with a couple of different collaborators in the last two tracks, Yoko Ono, the one we just talked about, and, and Paul McCartney, uncredited, albeit, mm-hmm. on Gimme Some Truth. Y- you've been collaborating with Tim Vesley. Yeah. Uh, I, I know you both uh, did a song on String of Lights called Waiting for Good News. Yeah. Uh, how did that collaboration come about? And more importantly, is there any new stuff coming out? Standing outside minus five Clutching a paper cup It's almost spring The river is breaking up A radio somewhere We avert The world is on the brink I need your insight Need to know what you think I'm waiting for good news I'm waiting for good news I have a lot of demos sitting in my iPhone, but um, Tim and I haven't recorded any new stuff lately. But that "Waiting for Good News" song—thanks for thanks for mentioning it and listening to it. Um, we wanted to do one that we wanted actually this song to be used. It's a song that I wrote based on the Miriam Taves book, um, "All My Puny Sorrows." So that's what that song is about. And there was a movie coming out based on the book that's out now, directed by Michael McGowan. And we were trying to maybe see if we could get that song used in the film. And we didn't succeed, but Michael McGowan was very gracious and, and uh, easily easy to communicate with. Um, but we ended up getting Tim to sing it because he's just got a beautiful voice. Uh, you know, And I like singing harmonies to his voice and it, it, it sounded better. With, his, with him singing it. Um, and he liked the song. So it was just kind of fun to switch it up, you know? And I like having him do one lead on that EP. And if it had been album length, maybe he would do, you know, lead vocal on two songs or something like that. But having him do one lead vocal was really fun. Did you approach him or did he approach you? Like, how did the whole partnership come up? Of, of us between in general? You, between you and Tim. Yeah, like, yeah, I, mean, I know you're kind of in the same circle of friends, so you, you yeah. might have known one another, but did you go, hey, Tim, would you like to do some stuff together? Did he come to you and say, hey, Jane, why don't we? I think he came and saw one of our early gigs. Well, he didn't come specifically to see us. He came, this was back in 2007 or eight. He came to see one of our sh- earliest shows at the Transac when we were still a trio. And his band, he was playing later with uh, Great Aunt Ida, who has a new record out, I think. And uh, then I approached him probably initially and said, hey, it'd be great to work with you or whatever. And he said, yeah, it would be, it would be interesting to hear what your stuff sounds like recorded. So we kind of went from there. We've sort of been working. He's worked on every album with me with The Real Shade, which was previously Shade since then. So I feel pretty lucky. And now we're working on this podcast together. He, You know, we do the... We do those uh, music buddy sessions, and yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. He's a great guy to work with. Well, so, in the way of a segue, I, yeah. I, I hope it doesn't end badly, and, and you don't have to write a song uh, like the next one that we're going to talk about on side two. <laughs> the most infamous track on the album, How Do You Sleep?
most discussed song on the album for all the right and wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah. So from Oh My Love to Oh You, Oh You Jerk. <laughs> Jerk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be polite. Yeah, I don't know what yeah. I don't want to get yeah. bleeped out. Um Yeah, so this was John's response to McCartney's well apparently John's response to McCartney's uh song on his nineteen seventy one album Ram called Too Many People. And um Paul saw it as a message to John across the airwaves. He felt this is what I've heard, or this is what maybe Paul, I've heard Paul McCartney say uh, he felt John was preaching a little bit about what people should do, preaching too much about what people should do with their lives and perhaps being a bit hypocritical at times. And uh, he says, he jokes that when this song came out, How Do You Sleep, he, he almost wrote a song called Quite Well, Thank You. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, all the, uh, the kind of song wars aside and the tension and the, um, you know, the dissipation of their friendship and everything, the temporary, it's a great song with a great slow groove and uh, wonderful ensemble playing on this one. I think you have to put it into context. So, so this album and this song being recorded in May of 1971. So, McCartney, remember I mentioned it off the top of the show, he issues that writ against his three former bandmates, New Year's Eve 1970. Uh, and the decision was made in his favor on March the 12th, 1971. So this is about two months after McCartney has won the court case. They're all at an all-time low, like loads of, I mean, tensions would have been, I would think, about about as hot as they could have been when that track was being laid down. Lots of vitriol to be found. Uh, the opening is a parody of, you know, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was largely McCartney's kind of uh, vision to do this album. And so they have the Sgt. Pepper-style violins tuning up in the opening. Oh, and, that's and right, And somebody yeah, clearing their throat. Uh, here's a quote from McCartney. John actually had Alan Klein and Yoko in the room suggesting lyrics during writing sessions. In his song, How Do You Sleep, the line, the only thing you done was yesterday was apparently Alan Klein's suggestion. And John said, hey, great, put that in. I can see the laughs they had doing it, and I had to work very hard not to take it too seriously. But the back of my mind, I was thinking, wait a minute, all I ever did was yesterday? I suppose that's a funny pun, but all I ever did was yesterday? along with Let It Be, The Long and Winding Road, Eleanor Rigby, Lady Madonna. A lot of hurt went down during that period of the early 70s, them feeling hurt, me feeling hurt. But John being John, he was the one who would write a hurtful song. That was his bag. McCartney saying that in his book, The Lyrics. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, John didn't mince words. He didn't suffer fools. And, uh, and you know, you can see it sometimes in the studio too. He'll just say... He'll just say to people that he's working with, oh, come on, would you F off or whatever, or stop doing that. And he just lashes out. He, he seems to be able to do that and get away with it somehow, I guess because he had the, so, so much charm on the other side of it, you know? And, and, and Lennon did, oh, no, it wasn't really about yeah. Paul I was writing, but which is such a load of crap, right? Like, <laughs> own it, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> it, exactly. it, it was very specifically targeted at McCartney. Here's a, here's a quote from somebody who was in the room. Yeah. Uh, a guy named Felix Dennis... 
who was one of the publishers of that Oz magazine that I talked about before. So he was staying at Tittenhurst Park at Lennon's invitation following the magazine's uh, infamous obscenity trial. So he was he was there. Here's his quote from, uh, this is from a magazine article that he wrote. They were writing the song as they performed it. Uh, and as these lyrics emerged, I remember Ringo getting more and more upset by this. He was really not very happy about this. And at one point, I have a clear memory of his say, him saying, that's enough, John. There were two magnificent studio musicians there, and they weren't very happy about it either. Oh. I would assume he's referring to probably Klaus Vorman and Nicky Hopkins would be my guess. Yeah. Uh, it is absolutely true to say that Yoko wrote many of the lyrics. I watched her writing them and then watched her race into the studio to show John, which would often and annoy the other musicians but she would race in there anyway waving a piece of paper and show John she'd had an idea he would say great or whatever and he would add something to it some of it was absolutely puerile thank god a lot of it never actually got recorded because it was highly highly personal like a bunch of schoolboys standing in the lavatory making scatological jokes and then falling about with laughter at their own wit the mood there wasn't totally vindictive as I felt it they were taking the piss out of the headmaster. A lot of giggling, a lot of laughing. If he'd had someone he could confide in other than Yoko, I think that the other people there would have persuaded him to leave it in the vaults for posterity. It mm. was a bit of a shame he ever let it out. That is Felix Dennis with that. Oh, interesting. That remembering, yeah. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, speaking of the, co the confrontation of it, I find that he does... You know, he chickened, he didn't chicken out, but he backed off later. But I mean, even the vocal delivery, the way he puts so much effect on his voice, so he's not actually right in your face. It's almost like he's yelling from across the room, across the bar room. So he doesn't want to get up close. It's almost like he's fearful of that immediate, like that, that intimate confrontation um, because his, his vocals have so much effect on them. Uh, George Harrison happily taking part uh, and it's and some dynamite slide guitar work definitely you know just uh, Ringo was there as I mentioned but he did not take part in the session yeah. Um, so yeah that's, uh, that's great great solo by Nicky Hopkins on the Wurlitzer amazing uh -huh. yeah so lots of good playing on that one for sure so in the in the playing respect I'm glad the song came out but you know in the subject and content maybe I don't know. Yeah, it's a little bit too bad that those lyrics had to be that vitriolic. Interesting, though, the Felix Dennis with the... Because when you put it in that the context of... It's a bunch of schoolboys sitting around, uh, you know, getting out of control, finding them, you know, their puerile humor very, you know, hilarious. Um, that kind of puts it in a little bit of a... Okay, so maybe it wasn't quite as... Vind maybe it comes across more vindictive than it actually was. I don't know. Yeah, that I, you could know, be true for I, sure. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so resentment, bitterness, two very rich veins to mine for many a songwriter, right? Lennon here, uh, Roger Waters comes to mind. He'll yeah. he'll tap into that a lot with uh, in his solo stuff and with Pink Floyd. George Harrison, uh, um, you know, with his some of his uh, Sue Me, Sue You Blues, which was about the breakup of the Beatles. Blood from a Clone, which was about a record company that, you know, wanted an album from him. Have you ever tapped into that vein? Uh, I've never tapped into the... No, I don't think I've had any experiences like that with people that I've that I've worked with 
musically. I'm lucky, you know. Uh, I think I've tapped into to negative other negative things that I've experienced in, in life. I can't think of any examples right now, especially especially in my younger days when I was just starting to songwrite. I, I, I think I was a lot darker back then and I would write things about all kinds of like unfortunate incidents. Uh, so, but I got over that. But did, did you ever like break up with a guy and then write a, a nasty song? Maybe not about him specifically, but you know, if he heard the song, he'd know who you were talking about. Ooh, Good question. Uh, yes. <laughs> Although I might not have written about it with vitriol and hate, it might have been more with a kind of, uh, you know, disappointment and heartbreak. <laughs> I'd have to go look at my, uh, my songs. But yeah, of course. I mean, breakups are great. You know, you, you break up and you're like, oh, bummer, I'm super heartbroken. Then you realize, oh, great, I'm super heartbroken. I got an album in there. Second last track, uh, How. Yeah, so you go from how do you sleep to how. How can I go forward when I don't know which way I'm facing? Again, you get the yin and the yang, right? Because this is much more pensive and sort of much more romantic song than than How Do You Sleep at Night. Um, and it's got, again, the beautiful vibraphone playing of John Bar- Barnum, the gorgeous arrangements of the flux fiddlers doing their their strings. And, and, you know, if you listen to those evolution mixes too, you can hear a lot of these things soloed, which is quite remarkable. And a, a beautiful song, kind of like... You know, as beautiful as as Jealous Guy. You know, it's just a beautiful song. And it, the, I think John's personal pain and, and vulnerability really shows through in his vocal delivery. Uh, yeah. And I think that's one of the things I like about him is his ability to bear his soul without embarrassment, to talk about love or doubt or insecurity without, you know, any shame in that. He just lets it out there. He did, uh, interesting you mentioned Jealous Guy uh, because he tracked his vocals for this song right after he'd finished working on Jealous Guy. Same oh, session. So finished working on Jealous Guy and then he, he tracked the vocals for this. Yeah. It was written in California towards the end of the Lennon's stay there in 1970s. Yeah. Uh, according to John, although I, I couldn't find the, the source quote, but according to John, George Harrison told him that it was the best song he'd ever heard. So, oh, so George Harrison app- nice. apparently liked it. There's some good support from the old bandmate. Yeah, it wouldn't that's have been, what you want. Wouldn't have been out of place, again, this very soul-bearing. I, I, it wouldn't have been out of place on John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. Right, yeah. And I, you know, the other thing that strikes me about this is, no pun intended, is the, those hits that they do, the, the ensemble playing of like, and the timing uh, of that, that. I mean, I don't know which instruments, definitely piano, uh, bass, a little bit of drums, um, probably um, probably almost the whole band had to do those hits and get them right on time. And they did 40 takes of this song and this was the last one, right? Yeah. yeah. And probably most of that was due to just trying to get those 
those timed properly. Again, good uh, musicians here there to, to, to pick that out. That, that hadn't occurred to me. And I wondered, like looking at it, pretty simple song, 40 takes. I, that surprised yeah. me, but there you go. I think it's the arrangement that uh, got them, you know. So we go to the last track on the album. Uh, maybe the, the catchiest track on the entire album in, in terms of a foot tapper. Uh, it would have been a great single. Oh, Yoko. upbeat song to end on you know as I said earlier I said you know this could have also started the album in my opinion um so it's the song of love it's about uh, it's Yoko it's a it's a melody that was inspired by the king of skiffle apparently Lonnie Donegan uh, a song called Lost John which is kind of funny because it's John Lennon um and that it's just for me the 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 heart and soul of this song is that sort of calliope-esque piano that Nicky Hopkins plays that busy again but so so perfectly timed and and just so groovy in a way um and the funny the funny lyrics like the lyrics like in the middle of a bath i call your name i just think what, what did he forget his towel you know <laughs> like i just love the way they're just so everyday sort of lyrics he's just saying he's just talking about his life isn't he in the middle of a shave yeah in the middle of a shave <laughs> i call your name like okay we, we i think it's beautiful how you know i think it's kind of beautiful how much he was willing to just talk about his love uh, love of yoko ono um and uh this was the first first studio take so they just nailed this one right off the bat and he's uh, on a really, you know, sort of suck and blow harmonica mm-hmm. on this. First time he played harmonica on a track since Rocky Raccoon. That's on right. The, uh, on the White Album. Yeah. Uh, and he, he overdubbed that that later later on onto the song. Yeah. The, the harmonica it, solo. Isn't it the outro of the song too? His harmonica playing. I think yeah. it takes it, it takes the song out, which is cr- it's kind of great. So in you know, and it also takes the album out. So that's kind of. Um, cool. Very infamous scene in uh, all three versions of the Imagine film. Yeah. Uh, Spectre and Lennon are recording the falsetto harmonies, and Lennon is berating the engineer, a guy named Philip McDonald, because he's having trouble punching in at the right spot on the tape. Uh, <laughs> oh, that must have been stressful. But Phil Spector's background vocals are so, like, they're so high. I mean, he had a high speaking voice, but you do think it's a woman, you know? Yeah. But yeah. he did a great job. Yeah, and it's both of them. They're doing them uh, cheek to cheek into the same mic. Yeah, amazing. Uh, doing the, the falsetto harmony vocals for that song. It's it, As I say, it's in the original Imagine documentary and in the other two that have been uh, made as well. Lennon said this of it. Uh, it's a very popular track, but I was sort of shy and embarrassed, and it didn't sort of represent my image of myself as the tough, hard-biting rock and roller with the acid tongue. Everybody wanted it to be a single. Uh, the record company, the public, everybody, but 
but I just stopped it from being a single because of that, mm. which probably kept it in uh, number two. It never made number one, the album he's talking about, the Imagine album, or sorry, the album was number one, but the single wasn't. So I, I don't know whether he's saying it did get released as a single or it didn't, or right. it got a lot of airplay as a single, but he never released it officially. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, I think what, so. What the deal is there. And yeah, uh, yeah they they nailed it. Uh, Ascot Sound Studios, 27th of May, 1971, in a single take. Boom. Amazing. Yep. And yep. I just, I just got to give a shout out to the movie Rushmore, the Wes Anderson movie Rushmore, because they used this um, in the film. And if anyone's seen Rushmore, you probably love the film. And the great Randall poster, you know, earlier I was talking about music placement. Well, fast forward a few, a couple of decades and the film Rushmore comes out and Randall Poster is such a good musical director. He always puts great, um, especially the, the the British wave stuff he he places in films. And he's been working with Wes Anderson ever since the Rushmore movie. And this song is in there, uh, and it's it's placed beautifully. And it just really enhances everything. So, as a a real counterpoint, this song to using, you know, there's, you look at how do you sleep, right? Or resentment and anger, ins- inspiration for the song. Oh, Yoko, just an out and out expression of love for somebody and the joy they bring. Uh, and it's, further to our earlier conversation, you must have written a couple of those. Um, have I? Jeez, I hope so. Have I? Maybe I need to. I don't know. I think one thing I respect about John Lennon that I don't have in me is I've always been embarrassed of bearing myself emotionally. Like I, I'm more along the Elvis Costello school of things of kind of let's couch that and let's see how many how many ways I can couch my feelings, uh, my true feelings for something, and couch it in in talking about something else. So. Um, it's one thing I really respect about John Lennon's songwriting that he was able to do that. Yep, all all out there, uh, the good and the bad. Yeah, but if I do write a song like that, I'll let you know. <laughs> Have I? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, so a couple other things that we, we can cover here. Uh, the artwork, which you oh, sort yeah. of, uh, you were, as, as, as your graphic design uh, interest uh, and profession coming into play, but front and rear photographs on the cover were taken by Yoko uh, with a Polaroid camera. Uh, and you talked earlier about the, the original idea had been a picture of John with his eyes replaced by clouds, but yeah. it looked, I think I've seen that somewhere, the yeah. mock-up for it, and it does look pretty brutal. It is, yeah. It, it, um, I think it was worked on by um, Daniel Richter, who was their assistant yes. at the time, Yes, uh, who's who's all over that film. He's, he's all over the film uh, Above Us Only Sky that came out recently, and yeah, so he he comes down and has had been working on this kind of mock up of the album cover, but it's kind of so interesting in in terms of the artistic visual process because so often the answer to something and it can work in music too is just right there in front of you and you didn't and you're working so hard to kind of figure something out and okay let's go all these different processes and try a bunch of different things when really it was just such a simple. Uh, simple solution in the long run was just putting these two photos together. 
and then uh, back cover, you had the quotation from Yoko's book, Grapefruit, which is uh, inspired the title track, but cloud piece, imagine the clouds dripping, dig a hole in your garden to put them in. Grapefruit, Yoko Ono is that collection. Uh, and then you had uh, George Makiunis, uh, an artist affiliated with the Fluxus movement. He designed the lettering, the font. Remember, you had to have people actually design font right. uh, and the inner sleeve layout. Mm. And then early copies of the album, uh, you got a big poster of Lennon seated playing at a, a white grand piano. And I remember this. Uh, I, I love the, you know, I remember buying it and it was so great. A lot of the Beatles albums and, and Beatles solo albums, like they gave you value for money. So you bought this and you got this big poster, which I promptly yeah. put up in, in my bedroom yeah. of Lennon at the piano. And then uh, there was also, I don't think in the North American version of the album, but remember Paul McCartney had come out with Ram and on the cover of Ram, he's holding a sheep by the horns, a big, a big male sheep. So Lennon did a parody of that on a postcard that was inside of him holding the ears of a pig. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. oh wow. I yeah. wonder if there's any more copies of that anywhere. Or, do you think they're still printing them? Um, well, as a matter of fact, yes. Uh, I bought uh, the most recent copy of Imagine that I bought was a, an anniversary edition on vinyl a couple of years ago, and I'll show it to you. It actually has the it has the pig postcard. Oh, great! Inside, that's so, funny. Well, uh, you know, speaking of the Fluxus movement and Beck, his grand Beck's grandfather Al Hansen was a big big part of the Fluxus movement too. So it's kind of funny. It's another it's another way in which Imagine has all these ripple effects and concentric circles to do with this album is. Because, you know, those two worlds collided there. Yeah. So that was the artwork. Now, the film is a, a total other beast or film. Is a, uh, it, it has the distinction of being the best documented LP of any of the solo Beatles careers without a doubt. Uh, the considerable number of session tapes came out from the Lennon vaults that have been utilized over the years. Uh, and then... It was a first at the time, again, Beatles thinking ahead, ahead of the, the curve, a full-length feature film with the same title as the record that you're going to put out. And it was produced by the Lennons, and it served as kind of a movie of the album with little vignettes of the Lennons out and about and with some famous friends in tow. They shot them in the UK and in New York and were edited to the songs on Imagine uh, and some tracks from Yoko's Fly LP. Yeah. Uh, now, to do this before there was any such thing as MTV or much music, uh, very prescient move because Yoko has used that footage for several projects uh, in the video age when the video age arrived. So in addition to the numerous conceptual scenes shot for the project, they shot tracking sessions for How Do You Sleep, Imagine Oh My Love, plus vocal overdubs for Gimme Some Truth, Jealous Guy, How, and Oh Yoko, all captured on film. It was a two-man team, and they had 16-millimeter cameras uh, during the filming, and sync sound was recorded on a quarter-inch Nagra deck, same kind of decks they used when they were making the Get Back film. The Beatles uh, were making that, uh, as well as multi-track. Uh, in the end, the footage went mostly unused at the time, 
the only clip to appear in Imagine, the initial film, was John's vocal overdub for Give Me Some Truth. Uh, not seen again for 17 years when it was utilized for Imagine John Lennon. I heard Yoko say in an interview they had essentially a railway boxcar-sized room full of tape cans. I can't imagine the job that would have been to edit down to how, you know, the length of that documentary, which was just, I guess, just over an hour. No, probably an hour and a half. Uh, I can't imagine what a job that must have been. But just think, and you wouldn't know at the time because you don't know at the time, but just like that footage is, has been used so much and is so, you know, to see John Lennon working in mm-hmm. the studio, laying vocals on a song or playing Imagine for the first time for the band. It's priceless. Like it, it is. It's it's archival stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. incredible. I was think, I, I think, it, I think it's just a, a genius piece of, of you know, creative output, and also the idea to ha- to put some of Yoko's songs from another album in there too is kind of cool. Like, it, they, and they're so different when you're listening to the when you're watching the film. They're just so different. You go, okay, now we're in a Yoko moment, and that's great. And then it, it gives you kind of it just really increases the the flow of it, uh, and you don't feel like oh, I wish this was all Imagine because yeah. it's, it's a creative piece of work, you know. Yeah, I mean, to me, the moment of the stuff they—it's—it's it's where he's sitting on the—I think it's the electric piano—and he plays. Oh yeah, I've been working on this one, and he plays. As far as we know, he plays "Imagine" for the first time to the to the band. other to the band yeah. there, and just again, you'd have no idea at the time, but just no. to think, it's like in the Get Back film when you see McCartney giving birth to the song "Get Back." I know. And it's just, again, you wouldn't know at the time, but now you look at it and go, wow, to have that moment captured on film. It's pretty incredible. Incredible. And the way that the the band, his band members, Klaus Furman and Nicky Hopkins, and there was one other, George, I think, was there too when he's playing. And, you know, John's sort of looking up at them for the reaction. They're just... They're just kind of mesmerized. Yeah, they're just listening. I mean, it's because it's partly the professionalism of them as musicians, but also because they're just going. I think they're going. This is an amazing song. And it's. Fun. I think he finishes. He goes. Oh, I think that one. I think that one's pretty good. Just for some context in the charts, other albums just to, around the time it came out, just to give you a flavor for it in the UK and Canadian charts. Every picture tells a story by Rod Stewart. There we go. Big album. Number Ram. one in Canada. Yeah, number one in Canada, in the colonies. Uh, Ram by McCartney was uh, still alive and well on the charts. Uh, Electric Warrior by T-Rex. Oh, there you go. It was big, that sort of glam sound. Uh, Tapestry by Carole King. Perfect. Great album. Uh, Who's Next Ah. by The Who. Maybe their greatest album. Oh, yeah. Love that album. Uh, Another not bad one, you may have heard of it, uh, Blue. By Joni Mitchell. Have you heard of that one? <laughs> I've heard she's got some talents. Uh, Pilgrimage by Wishbone Ash. Oh, wow. Wasn't uh, there a Wishbone Ash player on this al- on Imagine, too? There is. Some There's a, one of the guitar guys is, is from Wishbone Ash, or maybe a keyboard guy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Teaser and the Firecat by Cat Stevens. Oh, interesting. Uh, and in good old Canada, uh, CanCon. Uh, yeah, let's hear it. Thoughts of Moving On by Lighthouse. Ooh. Uh, Chilliwack, their yep. their debut album, and talk it over in the morning. Anne Murray. <laughs> yeah, 
Perfect. I love it. <laughs> there you go. Great research, Paul. Amazing. I always like to do what else was in the charts at the time. It's, it's just kind yeah, of... Yeah, I love that context, kind of actually, because you back. think about that and then you never, you know, thank goodness you're up for doing that research because... <laughs> it takes a lot of time, so yeah. All right. Uh, so, what are your uh, what are your final thoughts, takeaways on our conversation on this album? We've been talking about it for the last couple of hours. So, where do, yeah, wow. where are you sitting there, Gowan? I think um, I, I think John Lennon gets. I think he was a very important artist, and I think he was he was important as an activist, and I think. It was a tragedy that we lost him when we did. He wasn't, he was, you know, just still so young. And I would have liked to have seen what he hit, what he came up with. We don't know and we'll never know. Just like so many people, so many artists we've lost. Um, I think people have really strong opinions about him versus Paul McCartney, but I don't think it has to be that way. I think it can just be, you know, you can enjoy both of them as separate artists and enjoy them as the Beatles. Um, and Imagine's a beautiful album of peace and love. I like the album a lot. Don't listen to it as much. Yeah. Uh, a lot of John Lennon solo stuff I don't, but I, I think this is, well, not I think, th- this would be my favorite John Lennon solo album. Yeah. For me. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to do the deep dive for The Walrus Was Paul. So thank you for that because it was a lot of fun to, to dig in deeper to this album. There's a lot to be had on here. As always, Jane, my pleasure. Thank you so much for stopping by. It's been, been fun, always is. Likewise. Thank you, Paul. All right, so you can find out, again, I'll remind you, you can find out what's up with Jane by visiting her website, janegowan.com. The website for this podcast is romicast.com. Find the podcast on Facebook by doing a search for The Walrus Was Paul podcast page. I'm trying to up my sort of presence on Facebook. So if you can help me out, uh, you know, go to the page, share the page, give it a like, whatever. I, I want to get a few more people following on Facebook. Uh, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, evil Twitter uh, and Instagram as well. The handle on both of those social channels is Romanuk Paul, Romanuk Paul. And you can also drop me an email if you prefer. Uh, email address is the.romicast at gmail.com. So that is the dot romicast at gmail.com on the next episode my guest will be jose Contreras of the canadian indie band collective by divine right and he'll be digging into the beatles second album with the beatles the moment i heard the beatles i i knew what i was going to do with my life probably when i was like eight i got this for christmas being in canada of course it's beatlemania with the beatles with all these amazing quotes you know i didn't understand the sequence of records at that point and to me um every beatles record was a 10 out of 10 still is that is jose Contreras of by divine right you won't want to miss that he's a really colorful guy and that episode will drop in a couple of weeks uh you know man does not live by beatles alone there's a lot of fantastic music of all genres that I love listening to just as much as I love listening to the Beatles and I'll sometimes get emails or, uh, or questions over social channels. Hey, you know, what do you recommend? What are you listening to? So I thought what I'd do is I'd add a little thing here at the end of each podcast and just say, hey, here's a recommendation. So lately I've been listening to a collection of rare cuts and b-sides from the great Paul Weller, who 
I think uh, I, I just love his work. I mean, uh, was with the Jam going way back to the the start of his career. Then he did the Style Council, which was really cutting edge and, and ahead of its time. And he's been a solo artist for a number of years. And, and to me, he's up on the Mount Rushmore, uh, if you will, of great. British composers of his era. You know, you've got Lennon and McCartney up there, of course. Pete Townsend I'd put up there. Ray Davies of the Kinks I would put up there. And Paul Weller, uh, just a fantastic writer and musician. Uh, Anyway, he has a collection out right now called Will of the People. uh, And it takes his B-sides from 2005 up until 2021. It was personally curated by Weller. And the little CD box that I got contains some great background written by Weller on each of the 31 tracks. So it's it's really good and it's a great listen, uh, a great artist. So that's Will of the People by Paul Weller. And that is my recommendation for this week. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, a donation always appreciated. Click on the player or go to the website to do that. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels also do help out. That is it for this episode. I'm Paul Romanuk. Pleasure, as always. I'll catch you later. Do you ever get tired of being